stalker is shot dead by police after trying to kill his victim. And a girl is dead after a meet-up with her stalking ex. Cambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Tonight, we are going back to the subject of stalking. In the first part of the episode, I will tell you the story of a stalker that couldn't let go, and after viciously attacking his victim, he loses his life in a standoff with police. The other part of the episode is a recent case. In fact, it just happened in the past week, where a stalker would travel more than 400 kilometres to be close to his ex-partner, and then violently take her life. I thought we were going to have a bit of a break from these stalking cases, but the recent incident and the fact that these cases just keep appearing in my newsfeed means we need to make more awareness in regards to stalking and hopefully be able to get not only lawmakers and officials to have a close look at what can be done, but also the medical profession to look at what help can be given to try to stop those that perpetrate these crimes. First up, we have the case of Paul Lambert, born Paul Scales on the 10th of August 1980 in Queensland. So let's get a bit of background on him. Oh, and also I will refer to him as Lambert from now on to avoid confusion because he was born Paul Scales and changed his name to Lambert. And this is from the coroner's report, and I'll read large sections of this report, and I'll add it to a few news articles from news.com.au. Lambert's mother and father separated in 1986 when he was four years old. He had an older sister who would go on to get married and have a family. Lambert's father had two boys in a subsequent relationship and two daughters from a previous relationship. From the age of eight, Lambert had been seeing psychologists because he was always having behavioural issues. Lambert graduated from St James Practical School in 1998 and completed a tertiary degree in business and finance at Queensland's University of Technology, Southern Queensland. Lambert worked in a finance position at a motorcycle dealer in Harvey Bay And when he moved to New South Wales, he found a job in finance at a motorcycle dealer at at Cogra, which is just south of Sydney, where my football team resides. Lambert had a history of intimate partner violence. Between March 2003 and October 2016, Lambert was the subject of 10 interim or full apprehended domestic violence orders in regards to five girlfriends he'd had over that period. On three occasions, 
He was charged and convicted in relation to breaches of these ADVOs. Lambert repeatedly engaged in controlling, intimidating and sometimes physical violence towards his partners. He also had a pattern of engaging in dramatic behaviour when women tried to end the relationship with him. This included threatening to kill himself, inventing elaborate lies about family members dying, claiming he had cancer, or claiming he'd been sexually abused as a child. Sometimes he would contact family members of romantic partners and make threats of harm and he would create false identities to stalk partners. He would claim diagnosis of various psychological disorders to excuse his behaviour, implying he suffered from a disassociative or multiple personality disorder and this would be referring to what he would call himself Bad Paul or Evil Paul. At one stage, Lambert claimed to have nine personalities. In February 2014, Lambert married a woman he'd known since 2008. The relationship quickly soured, but they took a trip to the US in September of that year, renewing their vows in Orlando, Florida. And I know we got plenty of listeners out there. Hi to Orlando, Florida. On return to Australia, Lambert was using the dating app Tinder and he met Fox News reporter Brittany Keel. They got on well over Skype and all the messaging type apps. Brittany felt a bond with him when he told her that he'd been diagnosed with a brain tumour as her father had almost died of a brain tumour. With his marriage broken down, Lambert left and moved to Florida to be with Brittany in March of 2015. Soon after, Brittany could see Lambert was not right for her and tried to end the relationship. Like his past relationships, whenever Brittany tried to end the relationship, Lambert would invent a major life trauma. For example, the death of his father, a history of sexual abuse or diagnosis of a brain tumour. She felt pressured to stay. When Brittany finally terminated the relationship, Lambert harassed her and threatened to release private information about her to her employer and to other news stations. He also demanded she pay him back for all the dates they'd been on, claimed he had nine personalities and sent emails blaming his erratic behaviour on his twin brother. Of course, he hasn't got a twin brother. Brittany emailed him. I hope you get the medical help you need and are able to move on with your life as I'm trying to do. Our relationship is over and I'm sorry it did not work out. Take care of yourself and please move on with your life and leave me alone. She also threatened to go to the police if he persisted in harassing her. Lambert replied, That's a threat to me? You think I care when I have a death sentence? Now that's in relation to his fake brain tumour. You don't care about me. Why should I to you? Even though Brittany blocked him in every way she could, Lambert would find other ways to contact her. He set up a fake Facebook profile in the name of John Brown. Now that was Brittany's ex-colleague from the morning show in on Indianapolis TV. Under this fake profile, he posted on Brittany's timeline, Killer. Now that was reference to the threat to kill himself 
if they did not get back together. He made a fake email account under the name of Michael Michael. He emailed saying he was a friend of Lambert's and that he would not let Lambert do anything to harm her. Later he emailed again confessing that Michael Michael was really him and that he was suffering from multiple personality disorder. He wrote, You do not need to be afraid or scared, although you're probably at least feeling sick. I am ill, although for a time in my life this was being managed. This is the only way I will communicate with you. Any other forms of communication will not be me. So text, Facebook, etc., will not be me. Hours later, he emailed again, apologising for that email. For four days, he did not contact Brittany. She thought, great. He then called her private number, and when she answered, he just kept calling her name over and over. He then told her that the harassment was not him, but his twin brother, who she hadn't realised She'd been dating at the same time. (sighs) This guy is good. He's terrifying and uh, not somebody you want to get mixed up with. Anyway, Brittany reported the conduct to police and Lambert was arrested on the 11th of May 2015 and charged with stalking and extortion. She told police his threats and harassment made her physically sick. She couldn't eat or sleep and was afraid to leave home. He was deported on the 23rd of June 2015 after spending approximately a month in immigration detention. After being deported, he changed his last name from Scales to Lambert. So he's back in Australia. When his current wife found out he'd been deported for stalking, She went to police in Harvey Bay in Queensland and told them that Lambert had also stalked and intimidated her. She was granted a protection order, but Lambert took zero notice of it and breached it many times. Now, this is the problem with these court orders. They're really only a piece of paper, if that, and afford no real protection from the worst offenders, as we will see. On the 22nd of February 2016, Lambert and his wife were on the way to see a Justice of the Peace to sign their divorce documents. Why she's in the car with him, I don't know, but I guess they went down together. During the car ride, Lambert verbally abused his wife and said, He may as well crash the car. He accelerated the vehicle, then grabbed her neck and punched her in the face. She was able to get away and went to police. So he said he may as well crash the car. So he's obviously disassociating himself from the driver. So things are crazy with this guy. Lambert was charged with a number of offences, including assault occasioning actual bodily harm. On July 2016, Lambert was convicted on those charges and sentenced to nine months imprisonment with immediate release to parole. (sighs) Convictions were also recorded for driving offences and contravention of the protection order, for which he was sentenced to 12 months probation and disqualified from driving for two years. Now, this was in Queensland. However, Lambert had already moved to Cogra in New South Wales 
That's just south of Sydney. Go the Dragons. Part of the requirements for his parole was that he does not leave the state of Queensland. He cannot live or work outside of Queensland without the permission of the Queensland Probation and Parole Service. Lambert was supervised by a Probation and Parole Service senior case manager, Miss Raywin Sanson. At his initial risk assessment on the 19th of July 2016, Lambert requested that the orders be transferred to New South Wales so that he could live and work there. He expressed surprise that he was not able to live in Sydney or travel as he pleased and said he was not aware of these conditions of his sentence. His application to transfer his orders to New South Wales was declined on the 27th of July 2016. Lambert was told he could return to New South Wales to collect his belongings from the 17th to the 22nd of August 2016. A further application to transfer his orders was declined on the 19th of September 2016. So, this guy has got a virtual zero sentence. The only condition is, don't leave the state. Anyway, Lambert ignored this and resumed his job at the motorcycle dealer in Cogra as a financial consultant. He would fly back to Queensland to see his case manager. On the 9th of August 2016, Lambert falsely told his case manager that he was living on the Sunshine Coast for a few days' work at a motorcycle company, staying with his sister, and that he spent the rest of his time in Brisbane residing with his parents. On the 20th of September 2016, he reported that he was working full-time. The case officer didn't bother to check with Lambert's mother, sister or his employer to verify where he was living and working. I mean, who'd have thunk? Lambert was directed on the 23rd of August 2016 to attend the Responsible Men's Program. Now, that's a program aimed at preventing domestic violence, but he requested to do the program through his own psychologist. He didn't even have a psychologist. He wasn't seeing a psychologist at the time. But again, this was not checked out by case officers. What the fuck? Lambert called in sick when he was required to report to his case manager on the 31st of October 2016 and did not report on his next scheduled meeting on the 3rd of November 2016. And we'll get to why this didn't happen soon. So no one knew Lambert was in breach of his parole conditions and if they had known, they would have suspended his parole and a warrant for his arrest would have been issued. So let's just back up a couple of months to August 2016. It is at this time that Lambert meets a lady on a dating app, Tinder, who is living in Port Macquarie. I'll change her name for the podcast. I will call her Dr. A. Now, it's not that she wants anonymity at all, but uh, I haven't got in contact with her to talk to her about this case. She has done quite a few interviews. Anyway, Dr. A was living at Port Macquarie and working at the local hospital. It's about a four-hour drive north of Sydney where Lambert was based. Lambert and the doctor got on well and they spent the first couple of months travelling to see each other on the weekends. Soon, Dr. A felt a bit overwhelmed as Lambert began engaging in controlling and possessive behaviour. Towards the end of the relationship, 
Lambert started to use his old MO to emotionally manipulate Dr. A and make her feel unable to reject him, including threatening self-harm and suicide, claiming to have various mental illnesses, lying about deaths in the family, manufacturing dramas and stating that he needed help. Lambert also invented a friend called Dan and registered a different phone number to text Dr. A as Dan to tell her that Paul, which is Lambert, had attempted suicide. Dan used Dr. A's caring nature and sense of responsibility against her. Made up Dan told her that she had a duty to look after Paul because she was a doctor and pressured her to reconcile with him, telling her she was heartless and the only person who could keep Paul alive. Dr. A was aware through her work of the risk of suicide in people with borderline personality disorder. The emotional abuse was subtle at the start but escalated. It led to an erosion of Dr. A's confidence and self-worth and to her doubting her own judgment and her own behaviour. On Saturday, the 29th of October 2016, Dr. A agreed to allow Lambert to accompany her strictly as a friend, to a school reunion function at the Crown Plaza in Terrigal. During the night, Dr. A became emotional and confided to a friend that she felt scared of Lambert and that he was emotionally blackmailing her into resuming the relationship. Lambert left the function with Dr. A's bag, phone and keys and her friends had to retrieve them for her. Dr. A saw the concerned reaction of her friends and this helped her to see the relationship in a new light. Sometimes we all need to talk to someone about things just to get another's perspective. Dr. A did and she now felt empowered to fight back. Dr. A stayed the night at her sister's house and Lambert appeared unannounced a couple of times through the night. He also sent Dr. A approximately 50 threatening messages and phone calls. Dr. A's sister told her to go to the police, ASAP. On the morning of the 30th of October 2016, Dr. A attended Gosford Police Station with her sister. She told Senior Constable Bradley Clarkson that she was scared of Lambert and felt that he was emotionally blackmailing her with threats of self-harm. Senior Constable Clarkson checked the National Suspects and Offenders system and found what he described as an extensive history of mental health and officer safety issues. Senior Constable Clarkson did not tell Dr A what was in the records and he had no power to do so, but suggested to Dr A that the information was more pertinent to self-harm and officer safety. Dr A felt that Senior Constable Clarkson was kind and made her feel validated. He encouraged her to call police if there were more threats of self-harm or concerns for her safety. The National Suspects and Offenders System entry for Paul Lambert including warnings about the risk of self-harm and violence towards police. Details relating to three expired protection orders relating to past partners an active protection order in relation to his former wife and Lambert's convictions for attacking his wife in the car. 
There was nothing on the system that would have alerted Senior Constable Clarkson to the fact that Lambert was in breach of his parole, that's up in Queensland, or of the content of his parole and probation conditions. I guess this is another case of not sharing information across borders. The report prepared by Senior Constable Clarkson records that Dr A said she did not want to report an offence but wanted to make sure it was reported in case the situation escalated. The matter was recorded as domestic violence, no offence. Gosford senior officers reviewed the file and ultimately there was a decision to attend Mr Lambert's house in Cogra and make a welfare check. On the same day, Lambert took a day off work telling his boss he was having issues with his girlfriend. He flew to Port Macquarie and rented a white Corolla hatchback from First Class Rentals at the airport telling the manager Lee Scott that he was trying to make amends with his girlfriend. Lambert was disqualified from driving but Mr Scott had no access to any system that would have identified his licence status. That's strange, isn't it? you think rental car operations would be able to check to see if your licence was okay or not. Anyway, at 2.17pm on the 30th of October 2016, Lambert went to Bunnings at Port Macquarie and bought a utility knife, a hatchet, an axe, and two 30 metre rolls of duct tape. Always a sign of shit to come when you front up at the cashier with duct tape, axe and a knife. Anyway... At 4.20pm on the 30th of October 2016, Lambert was pulled over by Senior Constable Justin Cordell for driving 71 kilometres an hour in a 50 kilometres an hour zone. He was found to be disqualified and appropriately issued a court attendance notice, which is a, a what they call a CAN, C-A-N. Lambert persuaded Senior Constable Cordell that he was unaware that his licence was disqualified and Senior Constable Cordell noted that he had a good traffic record. Lambert told the constable that he would ask his girlfriend, who he said was a doctor, to collect the car and return it to the rental company. He walked away but then returned and sat in the gutter until the constable and his fellow officer left the scene. Lambert got back in the car and drove away. Police have no power to confiscate the keys of disqualified drivers, so there you go. Later on that night of the 30th of October, Dr A drove back from Gosford where she had filed the police report to Port Macquarie. Lambert was waiting at her house when she arrived. Now wouldn't that just grind on you? Dr A returned his bags without allowing him into the house. During the conversation, Lambert told her that Dan, remember Dan, was not a real person and he was just trying to get her attention. He also stated that he was the good Paul, but he could feel the bad Paul taking over. Dr A was frightened and called Port Macquarie Police. At 7pm, Lambert texted Dr A and she again called the police. At 7.07pm, she sent a message to Mr Lambert that said, Don't ever contact me again. At 7.30pm, she received a message which read, You need to call the police right now. Get them there. When they are there, ring me and I will tell you and them why. You need to understand that this is my good side right now. That good side won't last long 
especially being rejected. Call the police. When they are there, ring me and put me on speaker. Text OK back that you understand. I care about your safety. At 8.13pm, she received a message which read, Are they there yet? Go to a neighbour's house until they do. I'm not nearby at the moment. I need you to fully understand that this is the good side still. I can't keep it long and need positive reinforcement for it to stay for long periods. I know you're scared right now and rightfully so, but please know I'm doing this for you, okay? What the fuck? This is is pretty crazy stuff. At 8.16pm, she received a further message. I need you to be positive with me, okay? Encourage the good. I know it sounds wacky, but it's how it happens in me. You're not safe in that house. I have some of your house keys. Dr. A called the police four times between 7.08pm and 8.16pm as she became increasingly concerned about the messages and after the last message went to her neighbour's house. While Dr. A was waiting, she received more messages from Lambert stating he had keys to her house and she realised that some of her keys were in fact missing. That would be terrifying. Senior Constable Mick Gentle and Senior Constable Stiles arrived around 9pm and took Dr A to Port Macquarie Police Station. An interim ADVO or Apprehended Domestic Violence Order was made on her behalf. While Dr A was at the station, Lambert called and Senior Constable Gentle answered the phone. Lambert hung up but called again. Dr A said she overheard Lambert's voice on the phone saying he could not trust the other Paul, as he didn't know what he was capable of. Senior Constable Gentle told Lambert that his conduct was terrifying Dr A and that he needed to stop. He also told Lambert that he was taking out an ADVO, so he had to stop calling and messaging. Dr A told Senior Constable Gentle that Lambert was flying to Brisbane for a parole hearing the next day in order to assist him to serve the ADVO. Ding, 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 ding. This was a perfect opportunity for the cops to check on his parole conditions and have Lambert arrested and extradited back to Queensland. But it didn't happen. Dr A then took the advice of police on how to protect herself. She also kept working her shifts at the hospital, delivering babies and caring for patients. Dr A was unable to change her phone number because of its importance to her job. So now we get to the next day, the 31st of October 2016. Whew, that was a long day. Anyway, the next morning at around 6.30am, Lambert sent a text to his mother. So, Lambert, Mum, I'm in trouble again. I tried to talk to Joey, which was his former psychologist, Joey Ty. I tried to talk to Joey last week, but he wasn't available. Could I talk to you, Jocelyn or Nathan? I almost hurt Dr. A, but had enough strength not to. I told her to call the police, and she did. I've lost the plot. I'm on the run. I'm a mess. His mum replies with, What can I say? I'm sorry, but you need help. We can't help you. And you knew the outcome, and being on the run isn't the answer. Lambert replies, I'm a psychopath. I really am. Could you or Jocelyn please call me later when boys have gone to school? I've lost the plot again. Please don't leave me alone. 
Now, Lambert was required to report to the Queensland Probation and Parole Service, but called his case manager and said he was sick with a head cold. She thought he sounded unwell and said he could report on the 3rd of November. On the same day, Dr A's mum travelled to Port Macquarie to stay with Dr A at her house. Dr A worked out what keys had been stolen from her keyring by Lambert and removed the locking mechanism for those doors. She also removed the door handle from the downstairs bedroom. She asked a real estate agent to change the locks. She also hid knives in locations around the house. Dr A said police called her and told her they were trying to serve the ADVO. She hadn't heard any more from Lambert. Port Macquarie Police attempted to serve the ADVO by attending Port Macquarie Airport during the day when Lambert was expected to be flying from Port Macquarie to Brisbane for his parole meeting. The ground staff would not tell police if Lambert was on the plane and told them to contact head office. At 10.08am, Lambert went to PL Firearms in Port Macquarie and attempted to obtain a gun. The owners, Mr Peter Long and Miss Cheryl Long, spoke to Lambert. When Lambert was told he needed a licence for a gun, he asked for a taser or capsicum spray, which, of course, he was unable to buy, as he was told tasers were illegal. He said he wanted protection for a friend who was scared of her ex-boyfriend. Hmm. Mr Long encouraged him to buy a personal alarm from ACO and even gave him directions to the store. Lambert left the store and returned at about midday and bought a knife, despite Mr Long trying to persuade him to buy a torch instead. Lambert continued to stalk Dr A. At 11.04am, Lambert rented a room at the Rotary Lodge at the Port Macquarie Base Hospital under a false name, Brady Jackson, claiming his wife was staying in the hospital. It appears he spent much of the week using the lodge as a base to stalk Dr A. He told other guests at the lodge that his wife had a premature baby and spoke about how his wife's doctor was being stalked by a former boyfriend. Miss Patricia Darcy remembered thinking that it was odd that Toby, as he introduced himself, was more concerned about his wife's doctor than his own wife and baby. She said that Toby seemed agitated and was chain-smoking. That night, a man matching Lambert's description started chatting to a woman outside Port Macquarie Base Hospital. He told the woman that his wife was in labour inside and persuaded her to let him drive her home to Warhope. During the drive, he put his hand on her knee. She told him that she had a boyfriend and asked him to drop her in the main street. What a fucking charmer. The next day, the 1st of November 2016, Lambert was seen on CCTV footage at 3.26pm buying and filling a 5 litre can of petrol when refuelling his car. Earlier that day, he he had exchanged his white Corolla for a larger X6 Tarago and appeared interested in the luggage area of it. The rental guy saw that the Corolla was so dirty and full of litter that he thought Lambert had been sleeping in it. Lambert returned the Tarragos shortly after and reverted to the hatchback, stating that the new car was too big. At 11.23am, Lambert sent a text to his sister and brother-in-law stating, You can call the police. This isn't a joke. I won't call again. I have to do this before I change and someone gets hurt. You need to stay away from me. I'm not safe. Mum too. 
There was no reply. He'd sent such threats so often that the advice given to his family was to ignore them. On the 2nd of November 2016, Lambert went back to Bunnings and bought a club hammer and a crowbar. Oh, hi, I remember you. You bought the duct tape, knife and axe the other day. Anyway, that evening, two officers of the New South Wales Police Force attended Lambert's home in Cogra. The officers were told that Lambert had not been seen for several days and that he may have been visiting his girlfriend in Port Macquarie. No contact was made with Lambert's family or with Dr A and Lambert's case manager in Queensland was not aware by the home visit of the police. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. So now we get to the 3rd of November 2016. In the morning, Dr A went to work as normal. At around 3.15pm, Dr A's neighbour sees a man without a shirt in Dr A's kitchen through the window. Later, he was seen in the backyard smoking a cigarette. Now, (laughs) why wouldn't they call the cops? Anyway, at 5pm, Dr A comes home from work. She turned on the TV and reheated some spaghetti bolognese her mother had made for her in the microwave. At about 6pm, she went to her bedroom to pack some clothes to stay overnight with her cousin. Lambert emerged from the bedroom walk-in wardrobe and put his hand over her mouth. He was barefoot and bare-chested. He had a knife in his pocket and told her that he'd taken the knives out of her bedroom drawer. Remember, Dr A had been keeping a kitchen knife in her bedside table in case Lambert returned. She'd put all the knives all over the place. Dr A spoke to him briefly and asked to go to the toilet. Lambert let her go, but watched her. After a brief conversation, Dr A decided she needed to escape. She ran towards the door, but Lambert grabbed her wrist and started stabbing her. Dr A received 11 stab wounds to the chest, arms and legs. Lambert also poured petrol over her. This made her slippery and she was able to evade Lambert's grasp and run to the neighbours screaming for help. Dr A's neighbours ran to help her and were confronted with a horrific scene. Dr A retained consciousness and was able to direct her neighbours to treat her injuries and instruct them about what to tell emergency services. No one knew Lambert had fled the scene and there was some fear that he was still in the vicinity. The combination of Dr A's medical skills and her neighbour's bravery saved her life. An ambulance was called around 6.30pm and a number of police, including Detective Senior Constable Sean Durbridge, attended and canvassed the area for the attacker while Dr A was rushed to hospital. Police would find that Lambert had planned the scene for some hours and had items stored in Dr A's bedside drawers, including duct tape, cable ties and knives. He had also showered and written, I love Paul, in condensation on the mirror and stored a fire extinguisher in the bedroom wardrobe. At 7.05pm, it was identified that Lambert had been stopped in Port Macquarie four days earlier and a description of the vehicle was broadcast over the police radio known as VKG. A series of broadcasts followed, including that Lambert was wanted for a stabbing and attempted murder, that he was armed and dangerous and should be treated with extreme caution, and that he had previous warnings for firearms, suicide and self-harm. After Lambert fled the scene, he made a number of communications, now this is probably while he was driving, at around 7.05pm he called Dr A's phone. 
Her neighbour answered the phone and then handed it to an ambulance officer. According to the ambulance officer, Lambert said, How is she? And I didn't mean to do it. I want to talk to her. You know, an AVO is not going to stop me. I know where to find her. At 7.17pm, he sent text messages to his mother. She replied, So what's next, Paul? Lambert then replied, I'm sorry, Mum. I'm taking my life. She replies, And how are you doing that? He comes back at her, truck or building. I'm sorry. At 7.34pm, Dr A's mother received messages from Lambert on Facebook Messenger, which included screenshots of messages sent to Dr A. His messages read, I told the police to do more. I told them they wouldn't listen. Now he's hurt someone I care about deeply. I hope she's okay. I'm going to kill myself and I'm sure you welcome it. Tell Dr. A I'm sorry I wasn't strong enough to stop him. He tried to stab her and light her on fire. He's fighting his way out and I can only hold on so long. I'm not dominant. An AVO isn't enough. Tell them to do more. I'm sorry you're scared. I'm saying this to protect you. At 7.35pm, Lambert contacted a Sydney police station and told an officer that he'd stabbed his girlfriend and set her alight and was planning to throw himself under a truck on the highway. At 7.39pm, Lambert called his sister. He told her the police were chasing him and he was sick of hurting everyone. She told him to seek help from the police or a hospital, but he ended the call saying goodbye, Jocelyn. At 7.44pm, Lambert called the Port Macquarie Police Station and informed an officer, I just tried to kill my girlfriend. He said he was on the highway and wanted to jump in front of a truck. At 7.53pm, Lambert spoke to Detective Senior Constable Durbridge, who called his mobile phone. Lambert told him to put police guards at the hospital and at Dr A's mother and sister's house. And during the call, he said, I watched it in my head and I wasn't strong enough to stop it. Lambert terminated the call. Detective Senior Constable Durbridge spoke to Inspector Fuller about engaging police negotiators, and Inspector Fuller requested their assistance at 8pm. At 8.02pm, Durbridge called Lambert on his mobile phone. Lambert described stalking Dr A over a few days, knocking the locks out of the rear door to enter the house, and waiting for an hour and a half for Dr A to come home. He talked about himself in the third person. Lambert told DSC Durbridge that he was going to force sex on Dr. A, tie her up, strangle her, pour petrol on her and kill her. Durbridge tried to get Lambert to meet him with no avail. At 8.10pm, the on-call negotiator declined to assist because of the perceived risk of erratic behaviour while talking to Mr. Lambert on a mobile phone whilst driving at high speed. At 8.17pm, Lambert tried unsuccessfully to call his former psychologist, Mr. Ty, and it appears the call went to voicemail. This is because Ty had a policy he would not answer any customers' or clients' phones. At 8.18pm and 8.20pm, Lambert called his estranged wife. This call was recorded by her sister in order to prove that Lambert was in breach of a protection order. During the call, he told his wife that he'd stabbed someone and set them on fire and told her to get her mother and sister and keep them safe. 
Police located Lambert driving north on the Pacific Highway at around 8pm after triangulating his phone. A police pursuit started at about 9pm when Lambert failed to stop for Highway Patrol officers, Senior Constable Craig Miles and Senior Constable Logan O'Donoghue. They were in vehicle North 296. The pursuit was terminated at 9.14pm but recommenced soon afterwards with Senior Constable Damien Buckley as the lead driver in an unmarked police car. During the pursuit, Lambert engaged in extremely dangerous driving that put himself, police and other road users at serious risk. The pursuit ended around 9.30pm after road spikes were successfully deployed near Bonville by Senior Constable G.A. Zugajev and Senior Constable Rodney Peters. An earlier attempt to use road spikes had failed after Lambert had dangerously swerved out of their way. Lambert exited the car. He was barefoot and wearing shorts and a jumper. In-car video shows him facing the officers and raising a knife above his head before turning and running away towards the median strip. Senior Constable Miles and Senior Constable O'Donoghue can be seen on the ICV footage running after Lambert and vaulting over a concrete barrier on the median strip. Senior Constable Buckley followed. Other officers engaged in the highway pursuit arrived soon after. Some searched the bushland west of the car, partly as a result of an erroneous broadcast on VKG that Lambert had run towards the west. The responding police vehicles parked on the highway, effectively blocking traffic on the northbound side of the highway within five minutes of their arrival. Meanwhile, Senior Constable Miles and Senior Constable O'Donoghue and Senior Constable Buckley engaged in a chase north up the southbound side of the highway. In other words, they ran on the road towards the oncoming traffic. The lighting was poor and the cars narrowly missed the group, including two large B-double trucks. As they ran, the officers, particularly Senior Constable Buckley, urged Lambert to get off the road and to put down his weapon. At one point, Lambert yelled, I got a knife! And Miles replied, I got a gun! Put the knife down! After about three or four hundred metres, Lambert stopped and stood facing the officers on the southbound part of the highway. Lambert held the knife and waved it in front of his body. Senior Constable Miles and Senior Constable Buckley had their guns drawn. Senior Constable O'Donoghue shone a torch at Lambert's eyes to blind him and hamper any attempt to attack the officers. He kept his gun in his holster. He also made radio transmissions from the scene. Senior Constable O'Donoghue radioed for the highway to be closed. Senior Constable Buckley, Miles and O'Donoghue continued to call for Lambert to drop the knife and Constable Buckley tried to engage him in conversation. Buckley tried to steer Lambert off the road and onto the median strip. Buckley described the following interactions with Lambert. I kept talking to him. I was just saying the words to the effect of, I don't want to do that, brother. I don't. I don't want this to happen. Talk to me. You know, I said, I asked him, I said, what, what's your name? I'm Damien. What's your name, brother? Talk to me. Please talk to me. I'm happy to sort anything out, but you've got to put down that knife. At times, Buckley seemed to be getting through to Lambert and he became convinced he could get Lambert to surrender. 
At one key point, he was able to persuade Lambert to move off the southbound highway and onto the grass verge in the middle. As this occurred, more officers were arriving on the scene. Lambert was continually saying words to the effect, What do I have to do to make you shoot me? I want you to kill me. Lambert crossed the grass verge and the Bryphon wire onto the northbound part of the highway. By this stage, the road was blocked by vehicles of police officers. Lambert walked backwards away from the police. At various times, and as more officers arrived, he demanded that no officer move behind him. This was an issue of obvious sensitivity to him, and Senior Constable Buckley said it was the first time he saw Lambert flare up and show signs of aggression. The standoff continued, with Buckley repeatedly trying to engage with Lambert and other officers calling him to drop the knife. Buckley still believes he could have connected with Lambert and ended the standoff. He did say in evidence, believably, that he was prepared to talk all night. Sergeant Rory McDonnell called for a taser-trained officer when he arrived at the scene. Most of the officers present at the scene were highway patrol officers and accordingly did not have tasers. Some of the officers, including the sergeant, had tasers but had left them at the station in their eagerness to reach the scene. Senior Constable Richard Osborne, with Senior Constable Tajinder Singh in Coffs Harbour 14, was the only officer who responded to the taser call. Senior Constable Richard Osborne arrived with the taser and saw Lambert holding a knife and the other officers facing him with their weapons drawn. He heard Lambert saying that he only wanted to talk to Senior Constable Buckley but did not know that Buckley had established a rapport with Lambert. Osborne approached Lambert from behind. Osborne was not aware that Lambert had an issue with people moving behind him. His plan was to surprise Lambert by firing the taser at his back. Senior Constable Osborne had been trained that the back was a preferred taser area or body mass and that the element of surprise can be an effective method of gaining control and disarming an offender. Unfortunately, this action precipitated the final fatal confrontation. As Senior Constable Osborne approached, Senior Constable Miles said, Mate, you're going to get tasered. In evidence, Senior Constable Miles said that this comment was partly to focus Lambert's attention on him and partly to give Lambert an opportunity to surrender. Lambert turned and saw Senior Constable Osborne. Osborne fired the taser at around the same time. The taser footage depicts Lambert turning and then raising the knife and coming very close to Senior Constable Osborne. Many of the officers at the scene thought Osborne was about to be stabbed. The taser was working properly, but was not effective when it was deployed, possibly because the barbs connected with clothing rather than skin. Lambert can be seen on the taser footage to turn to his left, raise the knife over his head and move forward. At that point, the footage goes dark as Osborne reloads and a loud bang is audible, followed by a cry of pain. It's possible this records the first gunshot. Some of the witnesses, including Senior Constable Miles and Buckley, state that Lambert buckled or stopped after the first shot, but he then continued to move forward with the knife towards Senior Constable Miles and a number of shots were fired. 
Many of the witnesses say after the taser was deployed, something profound changed in Lambert's demeanour. He stiffened and acted like he was enraged. In a statement prepared for the inquest, Lambert's family stated that this change was something they were familiar with. Senior Constable Miles discharged his firearm first and there was a pause before Lambert came at him again and he and Buckley fired again. The VKG log records shots fired, shots fired and a request for an ambulance at 9.37pm. Buckley handcuffed Lambert from behind as a safety measure. Shortly afterwards, the handcuffs were removed and a number of officers commenced CPR. Senior Constable Rosell secured the knife and the handcuffs. He also had the presence of mind to take some photos of the scene and some notes on his phone. Lambert was dead. A search of Lambert's rental car revealed Lambert's passport, driver's licence, traffic infringements, disqualified driver uh, CAN and cash. Mobile phones were also located with a backpack and an amount of clothing. An undated note signed by Lambert was located in the backpack. The note provided for his funeral and stated, Free of what I do cause and subject people to. I'm toxic and not worse shit. I try to do the right thing, try to be a good person, but that person is not enough for some and too much for others. You all now at peace to free and live happy lives without me fucking it up and being a toxic blight on this world and to you all. <sighs> what a terrible ordeal, not only for Dr. J, also for Brittany and all the other women Lambert had relationships with. Now, during the coronial inquest, there were recommendations and all of that stuff. I want to read this bit out in regards to what could have been done in the weeks before Lambert died. It reads, With the benefit of hindsight and reflection, was there any particular form of intervention with Lambert in the two weeks prior to his death that had a realistic prospect of changing the tragic course of events? It goes on, sadly, the inquest has not identified any possible intervention in the final two weeks of Mr. Lambert's life that could have prevented the tragic outcome. The only realistic way of preventing the attack on Dr. J and the ensuing events on the Pacific Highway was for Mr. Lambert to choose to desist or to be arrested or otherwise contained. A Dr. Eagle considered Lambert's disorder capable of treatment but only with motivation to change. Compliance with appropriate mood-stabilising medication and regular sessions with an engaged and skilled psychiatrist. And of course, none of these factors were present in November 2016. An ADVO would not have stopped Lambert. The evidence suggests that he thought an order was in place at the time and he just didn't give a shit. Dr. J had no responsibility to protect herself, but she took every conceivable step to protect her own safety, including staying with relatives, alerting her neighbours, changing locks, repeatedly seeking police assistance and completely disengaging with Lambert. The best possible prospect of intervention was the detection of Lambert's breach of parole by living in New South Wales from July 16 to November 16. If a warrant had been issued for Lambert's arrest, 
It is highly likely that his encounters with the New South Wales Police Force in October and November would have led to his arrest and possibly psychiatric treatment. So really, this guy who was obviously obsessed and had mental issues couldn't be locked up or made to take his meds or forced into psychiatric help. He had to go to an extreme before anything could be done to lock him up. I said before, we as a society need to change the way we deal with stalking. We need to find some new out-of-the-box ideas on how we can treat the perpetrator and protect the victims. Now, this brings me to the last part of the show. And it look, sorry, this has gone on a lot longer than I thought it would tonight. I wasn't even going to bring you that last story until this story happened, which I'm about to tell you about. This week we had another stalking case where sadly, this time, it was the victim that lost her life. Last Saturday on the 2nd of March, 32-year-old dentist Dr. Preethi Reddy was attending, attending a doctor's convention or some extra study in St. Leonard's. Now that's just over the Harbour Bridge from Sydney. Dr. Reddy worked at Glenbrook, Glenbrook Dental Surgery in the Blue Mountains. Now that's about 70 k's west of Sydney. One of the attendees of the convention was a dentist from Tamworth, Dr. Hashwadan Nade. Now, Preeti and Nade had been in a five-year relationship before, but she had broken it off quite a while before, if not months, maybe a year. They were seen after the convention finished and they were described as talking animatedly. Anyway, they both went back to Sydney in the afternoon where Nade had a room at the Swiss Hotel in Market Street. They had dinner together and it was Preeti's intention to try to let Nadi down gently with the news she was moving to Melbourne to be with and marry her new boyfriend. Nade had different plans. He'd driven the 400 kilometres to Sydney to try and get back with Preeti and told her he was willing to move to Sydney and set up his own practice to be with her. She told him, I've moved on, you need to do the same. Later in the night at 2.30am, so this is Sunday morning, Preeti is seen at McDonald's around the corner from the hotel getting two bottles of water. Now this was the night of the Sydney Mardi Gras parade. So there were a lot of people out late that night and Preeti may have been watching the parade earlier. Don't know. Anyway, it's not clear if she had her own room at the Swiss Hotel or not as it did have discounted rooms for the dentist convention. The newspapers hinted that she actually stayed in his room but hey, I can't verify that at all. So next morning, 11am, which is Sunday, Preeti calls her mum to say she's having a late breakfast and will then drive home to Penrith in the far western suburbs of Sydney. She then phones her new boyfriend at 1.47pm, but then her phone goes dead. And things get strange. Friends of Nade noticed he's deleted his Facebook. It looked like he did this just after the convention finished the day before. Preeti's mum noticed that she isn't liking or commenting on any Facebook posts from the family. I guess she always does it really quickly. Calls to Preeti's phone go unanswered. Her phone is off. Calls to Nade wondering if he's seen her are answered by him, but he doesn't know anything. He says he's worried. Preeti's friends and family become so worried they file a missing persons report with police and start a Facebook page in the hope someone's seen her. 
5.30pm, responding to a worried text from one, one of Miss Reddy's friends, Nade said he didn't know where she was. On Monday, police are trying to find CCTV footage to track where Preeti had gone. They saw her, as I said, at McDonald's 2.30am on Sunday morning. They also saw her in the foil of the Swiss hotel just after getting back from McDonald's. But other than the phone calls to her dad and boyfriend, nothing. The media gets hold of the case and while police and friends and family try to find her, they ask for people to be on the lookout for her grey VW Golf. On Monday, police interview Nade over a long period, but they release him. On Monday night, there is a report of a collision between a truck and a car near Tamworth. The driver of the car dies in a fiery wreck and the driver of the truck manages to get out alive. The car had swerved in front of the truck on purpose. Soon that driver would be identified as Nade and now things would get really weird. By Tuesday, the grey golf is found and police find a suitcase in the back. It contains the dead body of Preeti Reddy. She has multiple stab wounds. Police would say that they're not looking for another suspect after Nade had died. Nade's brother in India would tell local news that his sibling would never do a thing like that and that he was kind. He said police should be looking for others involved. The problem is there is CCTV footage and a witness statement from the porter of the Swiss hotel of Nade needing assistance in getting a large suitcase into the boot of his car because it was so damn heavy. Other reports came in since from Nade's patients who said he was an asshole and rough when they operated on them. So again, another life lost to a fucking stalking cunt that didn't even have the balls to face up to what he did. In fact, he could have killed another person while committing suicide driving into the truck. It's so sad, and from what I read of Preeti's friends and family's comments, she was just so kind and wanted to try to let Nade down gently. She felt sorry for him, but had finally told him that it was the end and she was moving on. And she told him that's what he should do as well. An absolute waste. So that's about it for tonight, Islanders. What do you think? Have your say on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Just search for True Crime Island. Join the closed Facebook group, please, if you like. So now we get to the shout-outs for patrons. And it's a big thank you to Kathy, who is the newest supporter. Thank you all so much for your support. And thank you so much to all present and past patron supporters of the island. It really does make a difference. And as you know, True Crime Island is a totally listener-supported podcast. I keep it ad-free as I know you don't like them and neither do do I. Now, on that point, a listener told me this week that my podcast was paused through CastBox and an ad was inserted. Now, I've been in contact with CastBox. I've been in, in contact with a few people to try and get to find out what's going on here because I do not have any deals with any advertisers for any of this sort of stuff. So please let me know if the podcast is being paused, if you can find out what ad it is and let me know because this should not be happening. No one should be monetizing this podcast. Anyway, let's get back to it. If you want to support the 
island financially. For as little as a dollar a month, you too can become a patron. Go to patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland. Check out the levels and rewards. We've got mugs and t-shirts and stuff. Alternatively, you can do a one-off donation at paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland. You can also support the island by getting hold of some merch, such as t-shirts, hoodies, beach towels, and fantastic tote bags. They are great. My favourite are the mugs, of course. Everyone knows I love my mug of rage. All available from truecrimeisland.threadless.com. Remember, listeners, please don't order the black mugs. I say that every week. Just don't do it. They don't look good. Anyway, there was a few purchases this week. I think a pink large men's T-shirt today. Thank you very much. Boom, fuck a lunger. I do have keychains, lapel pins, stickers and beer koozies. You need to contact me directly for those. Uh, I've only got a few stickers left. I am putting an order in for more. This can be done by emailing me, cambo at truecrimeisland.com. It's also the best way to contact me personally. Tell me off, whatever. Case request, tell me I didn't didn't pronounce something right or whatever. Or you just might want to say, boom, fuck a lunga. Now, you don't have to spend money to support the island. You can also rate and review, tell your friends and family and workmates about the island. And if they don't know how to tune in, show them because there's so many podcasts out there. Search for True Crime Island on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and don't forget, join the closed group, please. So that's about it for the show tonight. Lots of love to Maggie James and I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island and as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night and boom, fire,